Reach College Sermons Online from Sunday, January 16, 2022 by Taylor Gabbard, pastor to college students at Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled The Mystery of Jesus from Colossians 1, 23-24. All right. Well, welcome everybody. Um, this is uh, part two of a three-part series of me preaching in a sling. Um, hopefully next week's the last time. Um, okay, so we're in a series called, uh, we're in a series on Colossians. Uh, we're working our way through the book. Today we'll, we'll get out of the first chapter, so we're making progress. Um, the first, uh, the first week, things, uh, let's review. The first th- week, the things we talked about was Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome. He is, uh, writing this to the church at Colossae. Um, his disciple Epaphras has come to Colossae, uh, or come from Colossae to Rome to visit Paul and tell Paul about a, uh, a heresy that's beginning to crop up in the church, right? We call it the Colossian heresy because quite frankly, we don't know what the heresy is, really. Uh, there's a lot of debate on what it could be. Um, it's got a lot of options. Um, but what we do see is that there is a kind of a gentler tone in Colossians than in other letters from Paul in the Bible. So in in uh, other letters, he's a little bit harsher or, or seems to be more upset in his rebuke, and it's because what we think is that in those situations, the heresy has taken more root in the church. The tone in, in Colossians, however, he keeps, in the first chapter, he keeps saying, you guys are Christians. You guys are faithful. You love each other. You're, you're doing the right thing. And so his tone is, so don't let this heresy take root, right? That's quite a different uh, kind of flavor for Paul. Um, in the first week, we talked about how Paul says, you got, you got faith and hope. I'm sorry, you got faith and love from hope, which is, right? We talked about what hope is. It's something reserved. It's something we anticipate. So when we think of hope, we think in English of like a wishful thing, like something I'm, I, I think might happen. I really, I really wish it would. But what Paul, when he says hope reserved, he's talking about like when you call a restaurant and make a reservation and you anticipate that your table will be ready or available at the time you've reserved it, right? So Paul says you got faith and love from hope. It's reserved for you. You got hope from the gospel, right? Because Jesus lives and gives us that hope. And the gospel, so the gospel produces hope and hope produces fruit and works or faith and love, right? And then, The next thing we saw Paul do is he went through this 218 words in Greek sentence where he said, know God, understand who God is, be in a relationship with God, know him, have theology, understand what you believe so that you can act like God, so you can be Christ-like, so you can live out what you know about God, act like God so that you'll know him more. Right? So, know God, act like God, so you can know God more. And then, and then we talked about what that meant for this class. Right? This age group, the theme that I want to go with is not, are you currently enrolled in college courses? Right? I have to kick most of you out right now. The reality is, what, the, what this age group is dealing with as you leave your parents' households in whatever stage of life you're in in your 20s, is that 
you're having to decide, what do I believe about God? What do I know about God? Do I know him? And how do I act that out? How do I live that? And that's what we want to talk about in this class. Then in week two, we see this Christological hymn, right? Paul talks about Jesus as the centerpiece to our faith. He says there's no room at the top. Jesus is the only thing that matters. He even says the fullness of God dwelled in him. And by that he's saying two things. He's saying one, Jesus is 100% God. He was 100% divine. And the other thing he's saying is there's no fullness apart from Jesus. There's no fullness to be found anywhere else in the world. All the fullness of God is in Christ. And then he says, you are alienated. You were alienated. You have iniquity. It's the sin you're born with, right? It's the sin that, that's in your nature. He says you were hostile. He's talking about transgressions, the rebellion in your mind against God and against his ways. And then he says you expressed it in evil deeds. These are the sins of your hands, the actions that you take, the actual expression of the hostility in your mind and the alienation in your nature. But he says, if you have heard, right? Now, we need to, we need to pause on this word heard because it's confusing for us. In the Bible, there's only one character really that differentiates hearing from doing, and it's James. And he has a very specific point when he's doing that. But in the rest of the Bible, when, when Paul's talking, when he says, hear it, he means believe it, do it, act on it, right? And I give you guys that example when your kids of your mom walking in your room and say, Get out of bed. You got school in 15 minutes. Make your bed. She comes back five minutes later and you haven't moved. And what do you say? Mom, I heard you. Well, she doesn't know that you heard her because you didn't do anything. And that's what Paul is saying. When he says, hear the gospel, he means act on it, not just let it go in one ear and out the other. So he says, if you've heard or walked in hope, then that will be shown in steadfast faith. So, it will be shown in how you live your life, in that you don't waver on who God is to you and who you are to God. So Paul ended last week, verse 23, he ended as a servant to the gospel. And in verse 24, he's going to start talking about his ministry. He's going to start describing his specific service to the gospel. Look in verse 24, chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am supplementing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in behalf of his body, which is the church. Okay, I'm going to be really honest with you guys. This sentence was is really confusing. It was really um, confusing for me. I thought for a second that I was just, I just had an issue, right? But I went to the commentaries and the commentaries express how difficult of a sentence this is to dissect. What Paul is saying here um, is hard to really decipher. But I'm going to give you guys the best thing that I could glean from my time in study this week and from the commentaries. Paul is essentially saying two things in this verse. In the first per uh, portion, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What Paul is saying is, his sufferings are brought on by his service to the church, big C, the whole church. Now, he's referring to the Colossians, 
but he means the church at large. I suffer because I serve the body of Christ. That's the first portion. And then the second portion, and this is where it gets a little muddled for me, he says, I am supplementing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in behalf of his body, which is the church. When you read that sentence, it sounds like Paul is making up for something that's lacking in what Christ did. That's what the, the way the English kind of reads. That's not at all what's being said. All right. What Paul is saying is that Jesus suffered and redeemed us in his suffering. There was, there was a redemptive uh, atonement in Jesus' suffering. But that the church has suffering yet to do, not to earn salvation. There's no redemption in our suffering. Our suffering is to take part in the, in the spreading of the gospel. Because the world is opposed to the gospel, as we serve the church, we will suffer. We'll suffer attacks. So what Paul's actually saying here, the better way that I found to put it is he's saying, my flesh is participating in my share of the church's sufferings. That's what Paul is trying to get across in verse 24. He's doing his share. He's suffering. James, uh, my, James is my favorite book of the Bible, so you're going to hear me reference it all the time. James says that if you're not suffering, you should be worried because you may not be on the right, the right team. Because if you are truly in God's camp, there is suffering involved. And this is, by the way, this is not your own personal unhappiness. Like this is not, I'm suffering because I can't afford the car I want. That's not suffering, right? That is a personal problem that you have. And what Paul is talking about here is suffering in service of Jesus. So the question is, are you suffering for the church? Are you suffering on behalf of the name of Jesus? So they look at, look in verse 25. I was made a minister of this church according to the commission from God granted to me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Okay. Paul was commissioned. What he's talking about, he received a specific commission. He was commissioned as an apostle. This is an office in the church. He has a certain level of authority. But here's the interesting thing. What, what was Paul uh, commissioned to do? He was commissioned to make disciples. Guess what? You are too. You have not the apostleship, but you have the same commission to go make disciples. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. You know what he doesn't say that we translate it as a lot in our heads? He doesn't say, go make converts. He's not saying, just share the good news of the gospel, get somebody to be saved, and then bail. Hear me out on this. That is the first step. You have to evangelize somebody to disciple them. Discipleship doesn't work if they're not following Jesus. But the, the point is that your job is to make disciples. And if their job is to make disciples, then your job is to make disciple makers. You have to make people who are making disciples. So let me ask you this. Are you discipling anybody? Are you being discipled by anybody? If you look at church history, there is a direct line. There is a direct line. 
Jesus discipled His 12 apostles. And His 12 apostles discipled the first generation of church believers. And, and we can string that. As a matter of fact, uh, part of the Catholic argument that they are the, the right church is that they have a lineage. They have a lineage of priest to priest to priest to priest of discipleship. I think that they misconstrued a little bit, but the point is this. If you're being discipled, you are at the end of a line that goes all the way back to Jesus. Because the point is, whoever's discipling you, they're just being discipled by somebody else who's leading them towards Jesus. So are you being poured into? Because I'm telling you this, the Christian life is a team effort. It's not meant to be lived alone. And if you're trying to figure out how to be like Jesus on your own, you are not going to get there. And on top of that, it's your job, once you find your place in line of getting discipled, to reach back and grab the hand of a, a, another believer and start discipling them. And this is where the doubt sets in. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know that much about the Bible. I don't even know how to have my quiet time or I'm a baby Christian, whatever. Whatever it is, here's the reality. That's the enemy getting in your head because there is always someone who is behind you in their Christian walk. Go three classrooms this direction, and you will find a hundred kids who are behind you in the process of being Christians. All you have to do is take one of them by the hand. And by the way, this is not a formal... I'm not saying you you, you and me, we're doing discipleship. You sit there, I'm going to stand up here, and I'm going to give you an hour-long sermon, just you and me. That's not what discipleship is. Discipleship is sharing life with that person because as you get taught how to be like Jesus by sharing life with, you, with the person that's discipling you, you turn around and share life with the person you're discipling, and you just show them what it means to respond to this world in a Christ-like way. Paul says he's fully carrying out the preaching Another way to put this uh, is make full the word. Okay, what that phrase means is to make understood. Okay, this goes back to hearing. If you hear it, really hear it, you have to understand it. That, that's the same thing. And what Paul is saying is his job is to make understood the word. So if, he's, if we know that understanding and hearing is also doing, and doing is being a disciple, then what he's saying is my job is to make understood so you can be a disciple, so that you can continue to walk like Jesus walked. And he says his job is to fully carry out the preaching of what? The Word. Okay, spoiler, because he's about to say it several times. The Word is Jesus. John tells us that the Word of God is Jesus Christ. Look in, look in verse 26 and 27. Uh, actually, I'm going to start back with uh, the end of 25. Fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is, the mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Jesus, he says, that is. Now, the interesting thing is, he's going to say the word, that is, and and. The, the short version is, that is Jesus. But what does he actually say? He says, that is the mystery. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 3, it says, You will multiply the nation, you will increase their joy, they will rejoice in your presence, as with the joy of harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils, for you will break the yoke of their burden, 
and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the marching warrior in the roar of battle and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to, his incre to the increase of his government or the peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with the justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of armies will be accomplished. Isaiah is talking about this mystery. He's talking about this conqueror, this person who will break the rod of the oppressors, this person that will save us. But then Isaiah, when he gets to chapter 53 and verse 7, he says, he, will be, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due. So on the one hand, Isaiah is talking about this conqueror that's going to save everybody. The, the, the government will rest on his shoulders. And then on the other hand, he's talking about this, this guy who gets beaten and oppressed, the suffering servant. This was the mystery. How was God going to save us? And how was God going to save us with one person who was somehow both the conqueror and the suffering servant. This is the mystery that Paul's talking about, and he says, but it's been revealed. Remember what we said about revelation, about wisdom and knowledge, true knowledge of God and wisdom, godly wisdom, can only be revealed by God himself. So he says, the mystery that is Christ, that was hidden, right? In Isaiah's time, it was hidden. He says that mystery has been revealed by God to who? To his saints. That means his people. It means Christians. Everyone who it, it bears the name of Christ has had the, the mystery of who Christ is revealed to them. And then he says, he says, God willed to make known what the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is. The wealth of His glory. Another way to translate this is, and some of your Bibles might actually say this, it says glorious riches. Okay. Uh, this is a specific phrase, and what this phrase is meaning to say is, there is one kind of richness that is glorious, and that is to have God Himself. When you have God Himself in your life, you have received glorious riches. He says there's nothing better than God Himself. Let's think about it this way. When you die, can you take any of your money with you? When Bill Gates dies, is he going to take any of his money with him? No, he's absolutely not. So unless you have glorious riches, God Himself... You're not taking any real riches. You're not taking anything with you that actually matters. He says the glorious riches of this mystery. So we know that the mystery is Jesus. But why does he say, he says the mystery among the Gentiles. The other part of this mystery and what the Jews 
spent time asking themselves in the Old Testament period was, how does this person save everybody? They had an assumption. They believed that, that this person was going to save them. But how does this person save everybody? That's part of the mystery. The mystery is, and he says at the end, the mystery is Christ in you. So the way, the mystery is not just Christ. And the mystery, the mystery of how Christ saves everyone is that God himself, glorious riches, are given to us. That's how we're saved. This is the mystery God revealed to his saints. He says, so if glorious riches are the mystery of Christ in you, he says that is the hope of glory. So what is glory? Glory is the perfect union with God. When you go to heaven and you have a completely unhindered, perfect union with God, that is glory. And what did we say hope was? Hope's an anticipation, a certainty. So he's saying the mystery, which is Christ in you, in all people that accept him, is that you will be certain, you will be able to anticipate glorious riches and glory with, of, of God being with God in heaven. So what is Paul trying to say in this passage so far? He says we suffer so that we can know God or understand him. He says we suffer so that we can know God, understand him, which we said if we understand God, we do, we're a doer, not just a hearer. And that makes us a disciple, somebody who's following God, somebody who the mystery is real in, somebody who Christ has is living in. And that gives you the hope for glorious riches. Let's talk about works-based salvation. In, in church history, there's this long-running theological debate of whether or not you are saved by grace and grace alone, or you have part in this process, whether or not you, you have to put in some effort. And the people who say you have to put in some effort, there's a, there's kind of a genuine place this comes from. It's not, it's not the same as the Pharisee argument. Pharisees kind of thought they could actually work their way to heaven. They could achieve it, right? What people who think that, that works-based salvation is doing is protecting God from being taken advantage of. Because I might come over here and say the magic words, oh, I, I confess Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and then go live however I want, right? And that's what they're worried about. They're worried about people taking advantage. James calls it the opportunity of the flesh. But here's the thing. James is advocating for a faith and grace-based salvation, no works included. But what what... James is saying is, if you've taken your salvation as an opportunity for the flesh, your salvation wasn't real. Because real salvation manifests itself in doing what God wants you to do, in acting like God, in being a disciple of His. So you don't have to protect God from people taking advantage of His free gift, because if you really got His free gift, you don't take advantage of it. And if you are taking advantage of it, James would say you need to ask yourself the real question, do you even have it? 
So if we know God, so that's what we've talked about so far, knowing God. Now, it, it blends, right? We know God, and that makes us act like God. But Paul has been specifically talking about knowing God, and now he's going to say, if we know God, what do we do about it? What should we do after we know God? Verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. Proclaim. That means to evangelize, right? That's sharing the good news of the gospel. We go tell people who Jesus is. And he says admonish. That's to warn or rebuke. I'm telling you right now that admonish is the thing our culture has the biggest problem with. Here's the reality. If you see a toddler running around with a steak knife, happy as can be because they got this shiny steak knife, what do you do? You take it away from them. You take it away from them, you take it away from them fast, right? And guess what that toddler's going to do? They are going to throw a fit. They do not want you to take their shiny object away. But what do you know? You know that that object is going to cause harm. Admonishment is not an action of judgment. It's not going to somebody and saying, you're a sinner and God hates you. It's going to someone and saying, hey, you're running around with a steak knife and I really don't want you to fall and hurt yourself because that's what's coming. But in our culture, that's unloving. So he says we proclaim, we admonish, and we teach. What are we teaching? Who God is, how to know Him. So that's discipleship. We proclaim, admonish, and teach so that we can know God more. So how do we teach? He says that at the end. He says, with all wisdom, right? Where does wisdom come from? It's revealed by God. Do you know where you learn who God is and how to teach Him? This book. You can't do it anywhere else. You can't go to some other source to find out who God is. You have to be in your Bible. He says, we teach with all wisdom so that, that's his favorite phrase in this chapter so far. We teach in all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. So another word for complete uh, is perfect. James uses that in, uh, in James 1.4. I'm actually going to read that one. In James 1.4, James says, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what is that, what is that getting at? Sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which God is making you perfect. Predestination is that God has promised you He will complete that. You will be perfected in the end, but you participate in that process day by day. So he's saying, know God, so you can act like God, so you can know God more. So who does Paul say this for? If you look in that verse, he says every person three times. Every person. Here's the reality. Why do we not share the gospel sometimes? It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. I'm scared. What if I get yelled at? What if they hate Christians? Do you know what you're doing when you don't tell somebody about Jesus because of any reason like that? 
you're putting your comfort before their crisis. The worst thing that will happen to you is that you will be uncomfortable. The worst thing that will happen to them is that they will die and go to hell. Those people are in crisis. Don't put your comfort before their crisis. Look at verse 29. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Okay, so Paul's saying all of this, every person that's in crisis, this is why I labor. Now, Paul's talked about suffering so far. He's talked about laboring, and he's about to talk about struggling. Okay, so let's, let's make sure we get this. How is it that Paul's talking about all these negative things? And then on the other side, he's talking about glorious riches. There is an entire sect of Christianity that teaches that God wants you to get riches right now. Here's the key thing that you have to dissect out of the Bible. If I can't take anything with me except for glorious riches, God himself, then why would I want to be hoarding and stocking up riches now? Glorious riches come later. Now it's time to labor. It's time to strive, struggle. And here's the question. Are you sacrificing later for right now? Are you putting your later aside because you want instant gratification? Our culture is huge on this. We want what we want and we want it right now. But the reality is what God has for us, it's later. Now, Paul, keep in mind, Paul's not saying that he's laboring because he's so great. He says, according to his power, God's power, that works mightily within me. You can try harder all you want, but it's the power of God that enables us to follow him. If you know God truly, if God is in your life, he empowers you and enables you to be like him. Let's look in chapter or chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have in your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and that they would attain to all the wealth that comes from, from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, what does that sound like? Verse, verse 1 through 3 of chapter 2 is literally a, a, a summarization or a repeat of everything we've gone through this morning. He's saying you struggle, right? He mentions the church at Laodicea. These letters, they wouldn't have stayed in one place. Paul would have written this letter and he would have expected it to circulate. And other churches would have been encouraged by this same letter. So he says, we struggle that or so that their hearts may be encouraged. Another way to put that is urged or strengthened. Here's what you need to understand about the hearts portion. Scripture talks about hearts differently than we do. We think of hearts as in Valentine's Day, right? Warm, gushy, lovey feelings. That's what we mean when we talk about hearts. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not trying to strengthen or encourage their emotions or their warm, fuzzy feelings. He's talking in, in the Bible, a heart refers to what makes a person who they are. It is the center of their being. But my favorite way to think about it is 
It is the place where plans and thoughts originate. It's what flows out into your life. Before you're saved, the place where plans and thoughts originate is transgression. And after you're saved, God begins to make you a new creation. David, when he, plays, when he prays for clean hands and a pure heart, he doesn't pray that God will repair his heart. He actually prays that God will take his heart away and create a brand new one that matches who God is. That's what happens when God saves you. He says he wants to strengthen their thoughts, their core. And he, and he also is saying, he says, in my version, it says knit them together. Um, basically what he's talking about is, he's talking about the body of believers that has been knit together in love for each other. So here's the, here's the next question. We'd already talked about Christianity is a team effort. So are you knit into the body? Are you serving somewhere? Are you struggling? Are you discipling? Are you being discipled? When somebody posts on the reach group me and says, hey, I'm, I'm hemmed up, I need, a, I need a ride. Are you the person that'll go give them that ride? Even if it inconveniences your day a little bit? You know, you, if you ever watch Animal Planet and you see a herd of animals and a predator starts going towards the herd, who does the predator get? He gets the stragglers. The weak on the outside, the ones that aren't connected and in the center. It's the same thing in a church. When hard times come into church, you know who stops coming to church? The people that are on the furthest of the outside. The people who aren't knit together in love with us. Because when the church body's under attack, those are the people on the outside that go, well, this isn't worth it. And they're the ones that miss out because the rest of us are knit together. We survive that trial and we grow in Christ's likeness because of what's going on. He says, and that they would attain, that they would get, right? Get what? The wealth of full assurance of understanding. Okay, so if understanding is doing, right? If, if to understand the word and to hear the word is to act it out, to live it, then... Uh, excuse me, then, do, then doing this proves, right, acting like Christ proves that you know Christ. Listen, uh, I heard Manly Beasley, a great speaker, I was listening to a sermon of his recently, and he said, if you're faced with death in the next 30 seconds, would you want to know, feel, or experience? It's a confusing question at first. And then he clarified, he said, death is about to come at you, you know it. Would you want to have felt God, have experienced God? Would you want to know God? You want to know God. You want to know Him and know that He knows you. The reality is that the assurance, the knowledge that you have God comes from this true understanding of the Word that manifests in how you act. I want to know God so well that I act like God so much that when 30 seconds of my life are left, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I know God and He knows me. He says, the assurance of understanding is the true knowledge of God's mystery. 
Christ himself. Right? The assurance is that you know the mystery, that it's been revealed to you, that it is Christ himself in your life. Knowing Christ equals the treasure of heavenly wisdom and knowledge in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, what are we talking about? When we talk about wisdom and knowledge and glorious riches, we're not talking about things that you can find in a library or on the stock market. We're talking about things that only God gives, that only come from God. Because of what? Because the fullness of God, the only thing fulfilling in life, it dwells in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ alone can you be full. There's nothing else in this world that can fill you up. So again, I ask, are you sacrificing your later fullness in Christ, glorious riches, assurance, and knowing? Are you sacrificing that for now and things that cannot fill you up and will never fill you up? What do you have your fist clenched around in your life that's not ever going to fill you up the way Christ can? The question is, do you actually know Jesus? And if you know Jesus, are you acting like him? Know Jesus so you can act like Jesus, so you can be assured, assured of the hope, the certainty, right, of glory. Time in heaven, unhindered, perfect union with God. I'm going to keep saying some of these things. Listen, if you come listen to me teach, you're going to hear a lot, a lot of things repeated because this, this all boils down to this whole book is teaching us who God is. My goal in here is that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that you know God and that because you know God, it affects the way you act, that you act in Christ's likeness, that you're knit into the church. And that because of the way that you walk in obedience to who God is and who you understand Him to be, that you know, that you know, that you know Him. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to REACH. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.